Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, you're very welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Morris O'Keefe, and last week... I was in County Clare, on the Burn, to visit some of the people that I recorded 20 years ago for Irish Life and Lore. And it inspired me to put together some clips taken from those interviews to make up this week's podcast. And my first destination in 1998 was to Listoon Varna, where I met Mary Angela Keane, whose knowledge of the burn is truly amazing. And sometimes people, when they come, they think they have landed on the moon because it's so bare-looking and, yeah. and barren and really nothing could be further from the truth. What you're actually looking at is an ancient sea bed. The, the rock here in the burn is carboniferous limestone and at one time, about 350 or 60 million years ago, all of this area was a very shallow, warm, muddy, slimy sea teeming with life, plants and animals. And as these plants and animals died, they dropped onto the sea floor and they built up there in horizontal beds. And you can actually see the horizontal beds there in the rock as we're looking at it. Yes. And eventually all of this rock and the island was the subject of an uplift and soil colonised the burren just the same as it did County Cork and County Kerry and County Limerick. But, but the burren suffered a glaciation very recently, only about 10,000 years ago. And a glacier um, came in at the end of a protracted period of cold weather. And the glacier came in in fingers. And as it arrived in here to a rather warmer climate, it started to melt and break down. And as it did so, it scraped away the surface soil and dumped it occasionally here and there. So today we have exposed bedrock intersected by broad, fertile, soil-bearing valleys. And that is what actually gives you the appearance of these lovely crevices, as you say. Because when the uplift occurred, a certain amount of squeezing and stretching of the bedrock went on. Then when the glacier removed the surface soil, those cracks that occurred in the bedrock were immediately exposed to the weather. And we have a very heavy rainfall here, about 58 degrees. And so these, these cracks and crevices 
started to uh, enlarge and that is what you are seeing today. A wide variety of flowers grow on the burn and Mary Angela Keane has a passion for this area of research and has written many books on the subject. Uh, remember that, you know, Ireland was much further south, you know, millions of years ago. And so the climate here was almost akin to the Mediterranean. And the plants and the animals and mosses and lichens, all of that, that lived here were what you might call Lusitanian or southern flora. So that's what the Burren had was southern flora. And the next thing, this ice moved in. And as it was melting and moving and washing away the surface soils, it did another thing. It dropped off some of the contents that it brought with it and you had seeds of a northern flora there. So today we have a mixture of northern and southern species. There, it's not In the barren, it isn't so much that each flower is rare. That's not so at all. Mm-hmm. What is the great mystique is the cohabitation or the mixture of two quite different ecological species side by side. In fact, there are five peculiarities in, in, in the barren. Yes. That, I suppose, is, is the major one that plants from the Arctic Circle growing side by side with plants from the Mediterranean. That's the first peculiarity. Second peculiarity is that acid and lime loving or maybe tolerant, acid and lime tolerant plants grow together. And the reason for that is that the soil that is now colonizing the burren is as a result of the herbage and foliage breaking down, getting caught in those crevices that you have seen, being worked on by the insect life and providing a soil which is quite high in acid. So if you like, the acid requirements of plants are there and of course so are the lime lime requirements. That's the second peculiarity. Third lot would be the abundance of native flora. And the reasons for that again, common sense, it, it is uneconomic in this area for farmers to spread chemical fertiliser on the naked limestones. And so, no fertiliser, no pesticides, no herbicides. So the natural pollinators are at work, the bees and the butterflies. And so you'll get an abundance of flora as a result of that. Uh, Another peculiarity is mountain species grow at sea level. And that is all to do with habitat. Remember that we have a very, very small climatic change from winter to summer. We only have seven degrees difference between winter and summer. Uh, We never have frost. We never have snow. We have a lot of rain, about 57, 58 inches, and a lot of wind. So if you like, uh, plus the influence of the Gulf Stream, plus the influence of the Gulf Stream, all of that... um, produces a habitat which is conducive to the requirements of mountain species, both at sea level and on, on the hillsides. You see, our hills really aren't very high. They're only about 1,000 <laughs> yes. feet. So to be calling them mountains really yeah. is, um, is uh, you it's know... It's correct. It is overdoing it a small bit. But there are mountains and there we are. There is evidence of civilization surviving on the burn for thousands of years. And here, Mary Angela Keane explains the reasons why. You won't understand the archaeology unless you understand the limestones. Reason being that the limestones here 
absorb all of the heat during the spring and what we laughingly call the summer. And as you know, heat rises. So we have a reverse temperature curve in the Burren during the winter. It is warmer on the tops of the hills and the limestones than it is at sea level. And warmth and light produce growth. And so the grass grows all during the winter time on the limestones in the Burren. And the farmers today, the year 2000, they put their cattle up on the limestones from the 1st of November until the 1st of May. And they have been doing that for the last 6,000 years, unaltered. My goodness. It's a, yes. it's a transhumance uh, grazing pattern. And that constantly growing grass, that was of absolute maximum value to the early graziers, the Stone Age man, and they were a pastoral people. But they didn't know much about winter fodder as we know today with bales of silage and hay and grain and all of that. So they were totally dependent on grazing land. And when they came to the Burren, you know, all their birthdays came together. They were able to keep all their stock alive because they were able to feed them on the limestones. And as a result of that, the first habitational sites here, that is, if we associate them with the burials, uh, date from 6000 BC. If if I might just add to that, every subsequent wave of uh, people who came into Ireland came to the Burren because they were all farmers. The next lot that came in was were the Celts. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are thousands of Celtic forts in, in the Burren. Great, great numbers of, of uh, ring forts, hill forts, cliff forts, promontory forts. And, and uh, the er- early burial places known as, uh, say, the wedge tombs well, uh, would be... They really yeah. now were belong yeah. to the first set that came yeah. in, the early early megalithic farmers right. from 6000 BC. You have uh, the portal dolmen, it's well known there, Palm the Brun, it's called. How did they ever yeah. build that? Yeah. First question yes. I'll ask St. Peter, when, how did they get it up? Because it's incredible, when, isn't it's it? It's incredible. Yes. And remember that it was built before the wheel was invented. Mm-hmm. That kind of puts it in time. And if you think about it, it was there four years before Christ, 4,000 years before Christ came on earth. Uh, yes, yes. You know? It makes the mind... <laughs> mind, mind bog. Then, of course, we have the later Stone Age monuments from the um, uh, Neolithic period, which are the wedge-shaped graves, yes. and they're dating from about 2000 to 1800 BC. And I always like to tell people that they are contemporaneous with Stonehenge, with the Great Wall of China, you know? Mm -hmm. So if you think about it, uh, it's a long time. It's a long time. And then moving into the Celtic period, Mm -hmm. you have great numbers of Celtic forts in the Burren. And then the next period of Irish history, you know, Irish history is written as clearly on the face of the Burren as words are on the, on the pages of a manuscript. While travelling around the Burn 20 years ago, my next visit was to Carrafen, where I met well-known historian, archaeologist and tour guide, Michael McMahon. And I first asked Michael about the prehistoric site that is the most visited site on the Burn, known as Paul Nebron. 
it is uh, roughly 6,000 years old. Uh, in fact, it, uh, as you know, it's, uh, it was scientifically excavated in fairly recent years and uh, gave a radiocarbon dating of 3,800 B.C., you're correct in, in saying that it is, of course, very well known. It's it's one of the most photographed and most visited archaeological monuments in the west of Ireland. And, uh, of course, the fact that it, uh, it has been scientifically excavated uh, gives it an added attraction. And, uh, of course, its location is right in the middle of the Burden Plateau. And uh, it's... Um, it's a very striking monument, very dramatic monument when you come on it for the first time. It's like a lunar uh, landscape, isn't it? With, with well, the limestone. Yes, of course, the burn, that's often a, a term that's applied to the burn, this sort of moonscape or lunar landscape. But of course, as you know, when you look at the burn at close quarters, well, you know, at first glance it might present, a fair, it might look like a pretty negative landscape. But if you examine it at close quarters, as you know, it accommodates a very rich flora and uh, flowers, for instance, that haven't found in other parts of these islands are accommodated there. And Michael McMahon then brought me on a tour of the burn and he brought me to his most favourite site, known as Cahar Connell Stone Fort. Yeah, uh, this is um, Cahar Connell uh, Stone Fort. In fact, it's a... An important feature here in this townland, <coughs> excuse me, um, because it's one of the most perfectly preserved uh, stone forts uh, in the entire burn. Now, the forts, uh, as you know, are the most widely distributed antiquities in the Irish countryside. Uh, the word fort is, is really a misnomer. It's uh, because there weren't forts in any military sense of that term. They were just protected farmsteads. In the stony country, and particularly here in the Burn, in this kingdom of stone, as it was once called, they're generally constructed of um, of uh, stone, and uh, we call them uh, cahars, or cashels. And, of course, that word, uh, cahar, cashel, and lis, and wrath, and so on, it's a uh, uh, an element frequently encountered in Irish place names. Mm-hmm. Lismore, Rathvilly, Cahar, um, you know, Cahar Moore, Cahar Duff, and uh, so on. And, uh, they, and they're, what were they used for? Well, they were just protected farmsteads. You, They were simple to construct, if you like, the earthen forts. You dug a circular trench and threw up the spoil to form a rampart and you had delimited a circular area inside which you built your little wooden houses or stone houses. And uh, Would you uh, usually have a dike going around outside? Yes, you had this foss uh, going round outside. And <clears throat> sometimes they were palisaded with wooden stakes for greater protection. And what now, about souterrains then? Yeah, in fact, a, a souterrain or an underground passage was a feature of very many stone forts and... Their primary function was really keeping food cool at a, an even temperature, if you like, before we discovered fridges and so on. But um, they were probably used as places of refuge or 
uh, that in in uh, in later times. But um, they say an awful lot of these souterrains were connected from one fort to another. No, I think that's a piece of folklore. You you'll frequently hear that that there's man will tell you there's a an underground passage from here to the castle of such a place. I think any of them that have been excavated were just quite small and quite uh, quite short. After leaving Michael McMahon and Curra Finn, I travelled north of the burn to Newquay, where I met Sean O'Halloran, a farmer who had been farming the land there for many generations. Sean, how long are you farming here? Oh, for all my life, I suppose... I'm 75, nearly 76 now, and, I'm, and when I left school, I was 14, I, I, I stayed at home with the father. And, of course, your father before you and your grandfather? Uh, my, see, my grandfather came here as a herdsman, which was, the, you know, back the years, the, this was the last place that you had, you had very few tenant farmers, you had mostly herdsmen around this area, not clear. You're talking about small fields, you're talking about the areas to be cleared, but the area around here, the, the, the type of land was such that you couldn't clear it, just craig land. And you needed a big amount, you needed a lot more land to sustain cattle than you're doing in, in the richer areas, like around Dole and around New Mac and Ferguson that day. So the land wasn't measured by by its acreage; it was married, no, measured the, by the, the, quant, the quality of the what was the grass, isn't it? There, no, it's the amount it could feed. As a matter of fact, no one will say that um, one instance would be when the matchmaking was in vogue around here, and that was not so long ago either. There, the dowry, the dowry was measured by the amount of cattle that. The, that the land could sustain. The amount of cows, actually. Mm-hmm. Cows are the big thing, of course. The cows And the cows had the calves and the cows had the milk. And that's, that's the way the land was measured around here. You didn't measure by the acre at all. What was the average uh, amount of cows per farmer? In the, for a fairly well-to-do farmer? No? A fairly well-to-do farmer might be making up to 20 cows. But um, around here, you'll be... Reasonably well off if you milk 12 cows, but you'll keep their calves until they were two or three years old. Mm. Because the nature of the land wouldn't sustain cows as such because they be, they get hurt in the craigs. They, get, they break their legs, they break their bones because when they get too heavy, they wouldn't be able to travel through the craigs. You see the divisions between the fields uh, in stone, dry stone walls. Oh, yeah, they're all dry stone walls around. Yeah, they're all dry stone walls. Of course, there was a lot of... Back back the years, there was a lot of small divisions. If you look at the, uh, any farm of land here now, that might, in some places, they might have less than an acre in, in broken broken down walls, which would be ancient. We can't store them now in the in the, the new program in the Reps program because they're the very old walls. They remained very old. Why? I suppose the population was bigger, maybe that they each had their, their little individual little piece. Yeah. You know, but. I mean, nowadays, when the when the wane of the cattle come in, of course, they're doing away with that, that part of the business. And then young cattle, when they're up to two years old, they'll be shedding the teeth and they'll be, they'll be in poor condition. They wouldn't be able to sustain, be able to on the feed without supplementary feeding, but the older cattle would. The three-year-olds, we had big three-year-old cattle here back down the years with big long horns. And, of course, that, that system has changed completely now. Mm-hmm. 
being a herdsman uh, on the land here. Um, yeah. That was the, the style of farming in those days was driving cattle from one area to another, wasn't it? Bringing them uh, from one grazing patch to another grazing it was, patch. It was, yeah, because that's the time of the land I was just in. <clears throat> the order system here was that the, the herdsmen had a freedom which would um, vary with the size of the farm. And in some place, if you had a very big farm, you're talking about a thousand acres. You might have the freedom. The freedom would consist of about seven or eight cows and their followers up to two years. The, the, the herdsmen would have that for themselves. Seven or eight cows and their calves up to the age of a year, year and a half or two years old. You'd have that for looking after the, the rest of the farm, for the, the landlord. So that was, the his, landlord, that was his payment? That was his payment. Mm. No other payment. He'd be self. He'd be self-contained. Like. And he had to make do with yeah. that number of cows. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He might have a few sheep with a tool just you know, and a horse. But there was no boundaries uh, to keep these cattle. Oh, there was. There was oh, there was boundaries. The farms. Well, I don't know. Like it wasn't like the Wild West. I think there was boundaries, but the boundaries would, would you know, the. the they weren't commonages as such. There was only there were very few commonages. That's there were one up in Ballyurin, or you have another one in Kinderboy. That would mean that there were several people had grazing rights in those places. In in I think Ballyurin up around Dublin and there, there would be, have nine or ten local farmers that could carry so many so many cattle each in the in the commonage over the winter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure, Jack. I suppose you living here for. How many? All the time. All the time. <laughs> you would have seen lots and lots of changes. Terrific uh, changes. And not too far away from Newquay, I visited Bell Harbour. And there I spoke to Jack Hines, who had been farming on the burn for many years. And he spoke to me about bringing his produce to the local market. Uh, the most convenient was Belly Vaughan for potatoes. Uh, Market every Thursday. And carloads, horse cars now. Loads of car after car after car went there every Thursday morning. Some of them would carry good strong horses and would, would carry up to a ton of potatoes. My God. Uh, onto Billy Bond. Because in those times the roads weren't steamrolling things. The roads were reasonably rough and safe for horses. If they were got smooth and frosty weather, they'd be slippery for horses. But, uh, they, and then sometimes the, these people came down from Longlister Manor and the came down they brought down they wanted they had just their horses and creels they sometimes brought down a creel of turf and would sell it in Ballyvahan for anything like according to the time of year or the demand or what quality it was from 10 bob to a pound mm-hmm. the creel the size of the creel and so on but uh, they'd have buy potatoes and have them so many strong potatoes potatoes were Weighed at the time in a load, 20 stone was a load of potatoes, which was two and a half hundredweights. Um, some you they brought them over from here to Ballyvon in old manure, used manure sacks. Uh, these manure sacks came 200 manure in them, they would take about 12 13 stone of potatoes. And I remember being told that Paddy Hines, who lived in Carn which is right at the heart of the burn, had a great 
amount of stories associated with folklore, and I was very anxious to hear some of those stories. This cow, uh, it was lush, it is still, of course, lush pasture, and the cow, the the sons, uh, each of the seven sons, uh, followed the cow day after day or day in day out because she was such a valuable animal and he he just let her around to the let us say one son brought her to the local townland and the next fella to the next townland and so on and she was milked at every house and any pail that uh, would be brought to to milk the cow, the cow filled it to the brim. And uh, so it, it carried on for a certain length of time. And uh, this day, two women uh, had a wager or a bet that uh, the, the pail this woman would bring out, she wouldn't fill. So what did the good lady bring out but a, a sieve and she kept milking the cow just over the townland of Peska. She kept milking the cow until the milk flowed down in seven streams of milk and the, the cow gave the, she kept milking the cow until the blood came and the cow got so weak after the <clears throat> she'd been milked and milked and she travelled to uh, back along the, the Schlievene Glasher and she lay down and died and to this day the uh, the um, spot where she lied I have seen it myself and several others and a great tourist attraction the middle of a green field where she lied and died the not a blade of grass ever grown it since. And the head and horns, the tail, the four legs and the body uh, is Im- are imprinted on the ground where she, where she died. Isn't that but, a story? Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the significance of the, of, the, of the spot where the cow is milked, it is, uh, the, the, the water comes up clearly from the rock and it flows down in seven streams, and it is noted to this day. People come from all over Ireland. I brought uh, a couple there myself. To uh, it, it has a, a famous cure for diabetes, mm-hmm. the, the water from the seven streams. And my final visit was down to Doolan to meet Michael Shannon. Michael's knowledge of the local folklore, stories, history and archaeology was just amazing. And he brought me on an old roadway called Trialahan, leading towards a stone in the shape of a chair. But here we have arrived at, at this stone, and what a stone. Michal, can you describe it to me? Yeah, it is known as the Piper's Chair, Cahir Nevibra. It is a famous stone. It's here, it's here, I suppose, since pagan times. It's a place where um, there's people used to come, especially travelling musicians. Like Johnny Doran came here and played. He was one of the great pipers at the time. Michael Russell used to come here and play. It was a kind of a tradition among musicians that they'd come and play in this stone. Now, it's positioned very funny. It's actually positioned facing the sitting sun. 
where it's positioned when you're sitting and you're facing the setting sun. So they come here and tell stories and some kind of a ritual site, much the same thing as the ring forts. Do you remember any of those no, stories being told? Oh, it's some of the stories, yes, yes, yes. Uh, I remember one story, Taig Omanin, Taig the Heyman. I'll give you bits of it in Irish, if you like, as they told it here in the stone, maybe a thousand oh, years ago. just, yeah. Right. We found Fadow that Banam Taig, a Kisvisha Dolla Clark, Jimini, let's see, and the year. One long, long ago, there was this man, and his name was Taig, and the job he had was going from Clare to Limerick, selling straw. He was there many times, Vishanga Minich. He was there loads of times, and uh, this particular day he was going into Limerick, and uh, he saw this big house. And the man came out from the house, and he said, uh, how much do you want for the straw? So Tyg said, so much, and the man says, bring it in, I need it. So Tyg brought it in, and Stokkum ek okrasat dotan var, taadur Tyg var bek bohar fadha kasig ek mehen. Tyg said, along roden. So he went in anyway, and uh, he ate enough, and he drank enough, and he fell asleep. And while he was asleep, the men put the horse and cart on the road, and the horse and cart made their way home because they knew the road. They had been there many times. And his people searched for Thai. They searched for him. He was there a couple of years asleep with the fairies he was. He was a couple of years asleep, and eventually he woke up, and he came out on the road. And when he came out on the road, the house disappeared. He went away. He came back, and he went back to his home place. And when he came back, there was a dance going on in his house. There was a load of people in it. And he went to the door, and so he knocked at the door. He went to go in, and they wouldn't let him in. They thought he was from the other world. They closed the door in his face. He went to the room where there was old women talking, and they closed the window. And they said, "Because you were like everyone else that went." <laughs> <laughs> so they closed the window, and he he was left there then, and um, he was very tired. So he had to go out in the cabin and he had to lie down along with the pig and he fell asleep. So the next morning he had talk on the road. He woke up and he shook himself and he went out on the road and he said to himself it must be Sunday and he wanted mass at all the Sunday before. So he went out on the road and when the people saw him they ran. It was darkish. And when Thaig saw him running, when he saw the people running, he ran after him. He said to himself, I must be getting late. So they ran to the church and Tyg ran after him. They never met to shed, we're going to mess. So when mess was over anyway, the priest sent for him and uh, he made his peace again with the priest. We've come to the end of this week's podcast, Memories and Stories from the Burn. I hope you enjoyed listening to the selection of clips that we selected for this week's podcast. And if you would like to hear those interviews in full, you can do so by going to irishlifeandlore.com. My name is Maurice O'Keefe, and I look forward to bringing you another podcast next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. 